Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss deep practices and daring resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Again on the podcast today is founder of Exegetical Tools, a pastor, a research fellow in Christian ethics, Todd Scasewater. Todd, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. I, I can't see you, but I trust in your hand you are holding very, very delicately and preciously a copy of the brand new Tyndale Greek New Testament from Crossway. Is that correct? I, I am holding it. I don't know okay. if it's tenderly or gingerly, but I'm it's definitely, definitely there's it's the one pages of are still intact. That's that's good because you probably just got it right. Uh, I've been flipping through it a little bit, so it's yeah. it's not worn down yet, though. That's uh, it's got some good binding. So okay, it's man, points for binding. Shape. Hey, so this week, as you know, as we've discussed, Exegetical Tools is really focusing on this brand new edition because it's it's clearly important. It's kind of a, a monumental thing, uh, a new Greek New Testament being published, and so lots of resources. I'd encourage our listeners to be checking out the website. Uh, be checking out our social media, Facebook and Twitter, etc. Follow those, like those, whatever you got to do, and be keeping up with this. This is going to be relevant for a lot of our audience for a few reasons that we're going to get into, but I just want you to try to condense this for me. Okay, all of the the thousands of words and thoughts that you've already uh, written or or whatever about the Tyndale Greek New Testament. Why? Or so who should get this and why? Just Just one sentence. One sentence? Yeah, oh. man. I, I, you're a linguist. Come on. You can do it. Holy cow. Um, anyone who likes to read the Greek New Testament should get this because it represents a the Greek New Testament from a different perspective of text-critical methodology. Okay. So that's the—if you had to choose, which I, I made you, one specific highlight, one specific difference about the Tyndale Greek New Testament is that— it represents a different methodology of text criticism. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the biggest highlight, uh, the biggest distinguishing feature of this. Uh, I was just looking at another blog today, and he kind of said the same thing. That's the distinguishing feature is that they're uh, they're establishing their readings, the, the best possible reading, from manuscripts 5th century and earlier. So that includes the three major unseals, um, Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and as well as the papyri. So uh, there's a few others as well that are uh, somewhat early to be included in there. They also try to make sure that any reading that they put in the text is in two manuscripts at least, uh, with one of those being from the 5th century or earlier. Uh, The one exception is Revelation, where you don't have uh, as many early witnesses. But So that means that um, you can't just have a conjectural emendation, which means that it doesn't ex- a reading doesn't exist in any manuscript, but you're just, you're just going to propose it because it makes sense, and you have all these reasons, but you can't find one manuscript that has it in there. So that does not happen in this. They're basing their readings on the earliest manuscripts, and uh, that's significant for a few other reasons that distinguish this from, from other ones, but maybe I'll hold off on that and let you get to the next question. Right, so we're going to get to that down the road, and so our, our listeners who are a little bit more familiar with the various issues and are just ready to get to it, I'm going to ask you to hang tight for just a second. Those of us who are a little less schooled, a little less familiar with the idea of text criticism, explain to me, Todd, why do we need another Greek New Testament? Don't we have the New Testament? Is somebody rewriting the Bible? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, slightly loaded question, so have fun. <laughs> Very loaded. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, well, there's um, so I'm by the time this podcast is released, uh, there it may already be posted, but William Varner has has written a wonderful little um, thousand word primer uh, or primer, however you want to say that, on textual criticism. And I asked him to do that because I knew that this question would be asked, actually, and he gladly obliged. And so that should either be on the website already or in the next couple of days. But um, essentially, you know, when you, you had the um, in the Renaissance and with Erasmus trying to pull together his own eclectic uh, Greek New Testament, he was trying to, to get back to the Greek text. That's the whole ad fontes um, mentality, back to the sources. And so with Erasmus, you have this actually um, a really important uh, point in history where we're trying to get the Bible not in Latin as it's been for so long, uh, where Latin was the official language. They were burning people at the stake like uh, Wycliffe for trying to translate into English and into someone's own language. But so now we're trying to get back to the Greek. Erasmus does his own edition, but it's, it's not based on the best manuscripts. Obviously, he did what he could do and what was available to him. And uh, since then, we, uh, we move along and you get to the King James Bible, which was translated into English uh, based on the Textus Receptus, which was this Greek text that's put together uh, based on the manuscripts available at the time. And those are particularly a lot of them late manuscripts, and I don't want to get into the whole KJV issue, but basically uh, more Byzantine text types, which are a certain type of text, um, and they tend to be a little later. Uh, now, when you get into the 1800s, you get this man named Samuel Tregellis. I hope that's how you say it. But Tregellis, um, he put together his own Greek New Testament. So now the, the race is to get the best manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, and the most consistent ones in order to, to reconstruct the Greek text as best we can. Because if you're not familiar with uh, uh, Greek textual criticism, we don't have the original text that Paul wrote, the, the original Gospels. We have a, a copies of copies, and then in some, you know, maybe that's the earliest we might have, a copy of a copy. Um, and then you go on, you get late 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century. The, the biggest manuscripts we have are these unseals, like I mentioned, from the 4th and 5th century. They contain pretty much the entire New Testament. Um, but then before that, you have the papyri. And a lot of those papyri were only recently discovered. So um, past century and a half, century. So a lot of these papyri pre preserved in Egypt, especially uh, over there with these dry climates and they're buried underground or they're in pottery or whatever. Often they're sometimes they're just buried in monasteries and or museums and they get discovered and we get a new text of uh, New Testament documents. So anyway, back to Tregellis back in the mid 1800s, he put together his own uh, edition and he was his methodology to determine what the best reading was, was to go with the earliest manuscripts possible. So the KJV was basing on text types, this Byzantine text type, and a lot. it didn't matter if those were late, early, uh, you know, a lot of them were later. Well, now he's saying we need to go back to the earliest manuscripts possible, and we need to try and base our readings on that. Um, and there are a whole other, you know, there's a bunch of other, um, like, reasoned eclecticism and this new CGBM, um, methodology that you can read about in the post that Varner has on our website, and it's too much to go into right now. But essentially, uh, this move to the earliest manuscripts is something that the Tyndale House Greek New Testament is following. So Tregellis' edition was very significant because Westcott and Hort, these two scholars also in the 1800s, they based their edition 
off of Tregrellis's edition. And Westcott and Hort were probably the most influential textual critics um, in the history of New Testament scholarship, maybe along with uh, Tischendorf as well later on. But um, so the, the Tyndale House Greek New Testament is, is saying what really matters are these early manuscripts. Uh, the CGBM is this new like computer-based statistical analysis kind of thing. A new book just came out uh, with SBL Press um, that, uh, that explains it, and it's a very different method, and that's what the Nestle Alon text and the UBS text now use to determine the best reading. So the Tyndale House is really breaking from that new trend in scholarship and saying we're going to go back to this older practice from the 1800s, uh, starting with Tregellis and then Westcott and Hort, where we're looking at early manuscripts and trying to determine the best reading from that. Um, that's that's kind of a, I'm sure, a little longer than you wanted. Uh, but again, uh, you can check the post we've put up by Varner, and he's written it out very nicely for you to, to get some good historical context on these different text-critical methodologies. Okay, so... That's helpful, I think, in telling us a little bit of uh, the advantage of having this on your shelf in addition to the other ones. Maybe not necessarily that you know this is superior, so throw the other ones away. If you decide to do that, mail them to me. I'll gladly give you my address. I want your copies. Um, but like Nestle on NA, you know, twenty eight now we're on these various updates and revisions as people study more manuscripts and the United Bible Society and some of these things. So. You're talking to someone now who's sold. They're like, yeah, of course I need that. I, I, I do a lot of Greek text study, whether uh, just for my own exegesis as a, as a pastor, um, or I'm into text criticism. That's something I work on. I do biblical studies, and I'm looking at you know various uh, issues in the text of a particular passage or a particular author. Of course I'm going to get this. Now tell me then what's what I'm getting when I open it up, what's the difference going to be? What are some of the practical outcomes of this different methodology that they use? Yeah. So practically it's going to result in some different readings in some places. Um, that, that will naturally happen with any Greek edition. You also have the SBL Greek new Testament. That's a new one that was put out a while back, uh, that you can get for free. Um, and so they have some different readings in that, in a, the NA28 and the UBS5 even, even though they're using a similar methodology, they end up with some different readings. So with every Greek New Testament, you'll have different readings. Um, for, for example, there's um, in, in Romans 5.1, you know, it says uh, there's a difference between ekomen, we have peace with God, and ekomen, let us have peace with God, the subjunctive. And um, that would be, you know, that's a that's a back and forth kind of thing. What is it? There's arguments back and forth. And depending on your methodology for determining the best text, uh, you might come up with a different answer. So I'm just now looking at this for the first time. They have the subjunctive here. They have ekomen. So uh, since we have been justified, therefore, uh, by faith, let us have peace uh, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the subjunctive there, um, is actually, it's suggesting, let us have peace. It's not saying we do have peace. Now, practically, if you're reading this and you're attuned to this sort of stuff, you might say, Hey, wait, I know that's a textual variant. Let me look down at the apparatus. When you look down at the apparatus. It's a lot smaller than in 28. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that they're focusing on early manuscripts, whereas NA28 focuses on, like, all the manuscripts. Like, it's very comprehensive apparatus. So if you're doing academic work and you need to study the variants and you need to uh, do the text-critical work, 
you're going to want to look at the apparatus of the NA28. But if you're just reading and you're wanting to just check the text for what they make for their choice, like a common here, or if you're wanting to just read your daily Greek, um, you know, read for enjoyment, you might want to read it in this Tyndale Bible because the small apparatus really encourages you to stay with the text and not get bogged down with like, you know, combing through that apparatus. Like sometimes I'm reading NA28 and I'll see a variant, and I'll just start looking at the variants, and then I'll say, oh, okay, it's in those manuscripts, and I'll say, what's that number? And I'll flip to the back of my 28, and before you know it, I'm doing critical textual criticism when I'm supposed to just be reading John or something. So this Bible will keep you more focused on the text. Uh, it'll allow you to, to see what uh, this methodology for text criticism has, has brought the editors to, uh, what conclusion it's brought the editors to for the uh, original reading, in this case, a Coleman. And I don't, I don't think that that's uh, the most um, popular choice, but it does seem, I'm looking at it here, a Coleman uh, has uh, the corrector, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Decanus, corrector. Those are all pretty early. And then um, a Coleman that we have is in the second, second corrector of Vaticanus and um, the first of Sinaiticus. So uh, that's kind of, it's almost a little, but it looks like a cult has the better manuscript support, and that's probably why they've included it here. So anyway, it's good for you to check a different edition every once in a while just to look at these variants and see how different editors choose it. Uh, also, they are going to come out with a text-critical commentary to explain their choices for all these variants, so that will come up. Um, practically as well, just reading this, it looks nice. Uh, they use ecthesis for to, to, to mark new paragraphs. So instead of indenting the paragraph inward like we do, uh, they indent it outward, which is the practice of some manuscripts, uh, some of these early manuscripts. You'll also see some alternative spellings. So, um, Travis, you probably know the, the verb genomai, right? Sure do. So, so genomai, yeah, there you go. So you got genomai. It's, Don't say you know, it, learn nothing. Gamma, Iota, Nu, but in a lot of these manuscripts, these early ones, it's actually spelled with an Epsilon Iota, so gain, Gainomai, or at least when it's declined, uh, inflected, it'll, it'll have Gain instead, and so that Iota to Epsilon Iota is a feature of spelling in this edition in a lot of places. They try to be consistent with the manuscripts, so for example, in Matthew, you might have some, sometimes it has just Iota, sometimes it has Epsilon Iota. And so they try to kind of follow the manuscripts as best as possible. Uh, they do not. Um, they do not include the the nomina sacra, which is uh, very sad. I think a lot of us uh, were hoping that they would, and they even regret that they weren't able to do it. And so, for those who don't know what that is, that is whenever a divine name or title like God, Christ, Jesus shows up in these early manuscripts, the earliest ones we have, they're always abbreviated with a little overbar. So for Jesus, you'll have an iota and a sigma with a line over it. It doesn't spell out the names. And so I think a lot of us were uh, thinking it would be pretty pretty cool to have the nomina sacra included in the Greek New Testament. Um, Comfort even, even argues that they may have written it that way in the original manuscripts because that's something that was um, somewhat common at the time in the first century for scribes outside the Bible to do as well. But they don't include those. So you'll see those, some spelling differences. You have the different layout, the smaller apparatus. And also, um, this might madden you or it might not. You can let me know, Travis, how you feel about this. 
but um, in following some earlier manuscripts as well, uh, they they put the Gospels followed by Acts, followed by the Catholic epistles, followed by the Pauline epistles with Hebrews tacked onto the end, as it normally is in these early manuscripts, and then followed by Revelation at the end. So there's a different order from our English Bible. So just now, as I was trying to flip to Romans, I, I went to Acts and tried to go forward, and I got into the Catholic epistles, and I thought, oh, no. So I flipped to the back, and Paul's back there in the back. So, um, But who knows? Maybe uh, relegating Paul to the back of our Bible might, might help us uh, break away from the Pauline-only American Christianity. What do you think? Um, I'm a Baptist, so I'd like to keep the Catholics out of sight and out of mind as much as possible. <laughs> Um, no, but but in in also humorously, but tipping my hand a little bit, as a second year Greek student, I am far less familiar with capital Greek letters, and so any time in my Greek Bible, I'm trying to to remember. Okay, I know the katas are all the gospels, and I definitely know what Acts looks like, and all the rest of them. I'm like, I, I think I kind of remember which letter that one is because I'm so used to these lowercase letters that switching up the the order on me is gonna be yeah maddening, but. I, I'm probably not the target market, um, and probably it's just laying down the gauntlet for me to actually learn capital Greek letters. So, you yeah, know what? Yeah. I'm going to let them slide this time, but next time they're going to be hearing from me. All right, back to first semester Greek. It's okay. We'll, we'll create a course mm. at Exegetical Tools for learning capital letters. It'll consist of one video with an admonition at the end to quit being lazy and go learn it. Mm, perfect. You know, necessity good? is the mother of invention. But uh, necessity is also the mother of neglect, because if I don't need to know them, I probably won't learn them. That's, That's just kind of how I roll. Re- What's that? You can't, re- you can't rely on your English Bible knowledge to find the right book now, so you're going to have to go learn it. And that's probably good. That would probably help me a lot with a lot of areas, um, not relying on my English Bible knowledge to kind of halfway translate the Greek and then sort of fill in the rest from my vague memory about it. That's not a good practice, I'm sure. So, um, no, this this sounds like it's going to be really, really important, especially for those who are getting into any kind of text critical issue. But I want to ask you how you think pastors might benefit. Pastors who obviously know some Greek, have some have some knowledge a couple of years, recall from seminary, and are retaining their Greek with all of exegetical tools, lovely Greek retention resources. How might they benefit from adding this? They, you know, I dropped 60 bucks on NA28. Why do I need this one? Yep. Um, well, thankfully, this one's a little cheaper. Uh, right now, it's running around 33 for the hardback. Um, that's not terrible. But anytime you get a a new Bible, I think it kind of, uh, I, I think there's something special about the printed book, uh, not to get mystical on you here, but there's just, I think there's something about, you know, the binding and the pages and the cover and the way it all comes together. And it's sitting here on my desk and it's a new book. And, uh, every time I come in my office for the past couple of weeks, I've had it on my desk. It's got an attractive, just black sleek cover, little, um, a little cover that goes over the book as well. And, uh, it just looks great, and I just want to open it. So the fact that getting a new work will uh, get you into the text more just by getting you excited about a new Bible that you have, that's a good thing in itself. Uh, I think one of the other things that um, is not as practical for pastors, maybe, but helps them to, to get a better sense for the text is that while this apparatus is smaller, the benefit is if you go to the appendix in the back, it has a list of the manuscripts and their approximate date, where they're located, and what, what they contain. 
And I think when you're doing the NA28, there are, that that is so there are so many witnesses um, that the NA28 deals with that you can get a sense for kind of the, the main ones, but you get lost in all the numbers and uh, all the fathers that it cites in there. With this, there's there's very few witnesses. Um, if you go to the appendix, there's this nice chart, and this actually looks manageable. Like I feel like okay, papyri, you know, papyri one through. 135, and then the, the major unseals, and then about another two and a half pages of witnesses. That's not a whole lot. And so for pastors who are maybe often intimidated by textual criticism, I think that using this Bible and, and using the apparatus will help you to become more familiar with the major early manuscripts than NA28 would, because with NA28, you'll be distracted from them. But in here, you'll constantly see Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and You'll, you know, you see that Aleph, and you go, oh, I know what that is. P75, I know what that is. B, I know what that is. And then when you get to the commentaries, you'll be much more comfortable reading the comments about manuscripts and variants and that sort of thing. And you'll have a better apologetic, you know, when people start asking you about the Bible. And, like, oh, I've heard, you know, Bart Ehrman, he has this book about how the Bible has 10,000 million variants, and we just can't trust it. And you can say, well, um, you can actually respond to that a little more intelligently and you could even bring out your Bible and show them. And there's not this giant apparatus. It's actually a very simple one and it's very manageable. So I think those are a couple of the kind of the practical benefits for pastors. Um, as far as preaching and teaching goes, you're going to have essentially the same text. You're going to have different variants. And when you do, you'll have um, the apparatus to check whether you, whether you're using the NA 28 or the Tyndale or the UBS but one thing it is nice to have is just several Greek editions so that if there is a variant like Ekomen versus Ekomen, uh, you can go to your three different Greek New Testaments or your four or whatever, and you can, uh, you can check to see what each edition decided and what they included in the text, and you can remember what their text-critical methodology is and then get a sense for you know, how these different methodologies bring us to different results. I think that's important in, in having at least a working knowledge of some of the background and the theory behind these different Greek New Testaments and the way that text critis, critical issues are done. It's one thing as a pastor to know, well, the differences are really slight and they don't affect any major doctrine. You know, there's not a Greek New Testament that's a reputable Greek New Testament that's ever going to be published that says, actually, Jesus wasn't resurrected. That's that's not going to happen because that's easily well attested to in the manuscripts that we have. That's not something that's going to shift by some new finding. However, I think it's also wise to not just have this kind of um, textual agnosticism. Well, we can't really know if it's a common or a common, uh, but you know, this is sort of where I lean. I think we can have maybe a, a cautioned confidence to say, look, I, I, you know, I, I've, I'm well aware of the various theories, and I understand which which Greek text represents which theory, and um, I can have a caution confidence in my you know, where I lean on this and where I land on this. And obviously, that doesn't mean we have to have certainty about every single little text critical issue. But I think this this is more relevant than pastors may realize, more relevant than probably I realized until kind of wading into the world of text criticism. So I appreciate what you have to say about that. I think that's helpful, and I hope it's an encouragement to our listeners who are in the pastorate, who are uh, interpreting this word not just for academic kicks and giggles, but uh, to exhort and encourage God's people on a weekly basis. So I appreciate that. Any other final thoughts about the Tyndale Greek New Testament? 
That's pretty cool. You should get it. Uh, <laughs> Man, that's um, a novel. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. No, uh, there's, you know, there, so there is a hardback edition. There's also a true tone edition. And if you look on Christian book distributors or Christianbook.com, I think it is, they have listed a bunch of the, the fancy leather editions that'll be coming out. So currently available are the hardback and the uh, true tone. But if you want to get a, a fancy leather one, you can do that as well. Um, just flipping through here on the last thing, you know, I, I think one of the, I think one of the, one last thought is that these, these, um, the editors note this and I agree with them that in following the manuscripts on things like spelling conventions and even things like breathing mark, uh, sometimes it's Abraham and sometimes it's Abraham. So sometimes Abraham has a rough breathing mark and sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. Uh, there's variance to the to the language and the conventions of the scribes, and I think that those conventions often can be just scribal tendencies or their attempt to mimic other manuscripts. But it can also be um, signals of what the language was actually like at the time of these manuscripts. So I think for students of Greek, it's actually more messy, but it's pedagogically useful for them to see these variances in in language. Sometimes it's genomai, sometimes it's genomai. I think it's good for them to, to realize that it helps them see that language is a living thing. Languages evolve and change, and spelling conventions change, and that's true in Koine Greek, which the Bible is written in, as much as it's true in English and modern German and everything else. So uh, for pedagogical purposes, um, there's there might be some things that strike the eye a little strangely in this volume, but I think it's going to actually force us to dig further into the Greek language itself and into the manuscript tradition which is something that I don't think the other editions thus far have forced us to do. I think that if they had included the Nomina Sacra in here, and I understand why they didn't, there's some issues with doing that, but I think if they had done that, that would have even been another thing that would have pushed us all back to the manuscripts. And in, in today's day and age, you've got like the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, uh, .org, you know, CS, um, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, uh, those first letters, .org, you you know, whatever. And and you've got all these websites where you got Bible works with the manuscript viewer. Um, we've done a couple videos like webinars with exegetical tools, just inviting people to come join us as we walk through translating manuscripts like Galatians and Sinaiticus. It is just so amazing that I don't have to travel to a museum to see a 4th century manuscript of the New Testament. I can just pull it up on my computer screen, and I can read it. And you might be surprised at a lot of the things you find when you do open those manuscripts up and dig into it. Uh, not in a way that's I think is going to challenge your faith or anything like that, or, but in a way that you're just going to say, whoa, I had no idea that this was in the manuscript and the Nomina Sacra over here, and this looks strange, What's and this is what an actual variant looks like when a scribe writes a word out into the margins or when a scribe uh, writes three incorrect letters and then scratches them out and then starts the word over again and just things like that. I think the Tyndale House Bible will push us back uh, to, to examining the manuscripts themselves uh, rather than just looking at an apparatus. Advantis. Back to the That's source, awesome. right? Good, good. Hey, man, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's always uh, good to be able to glean a little bit of insight from your uh, biblical studies knowledge. And 
just the water that you swim in. So I appreciate that, man. Uh, I really do hope that listeners who are maybe uh, they're just they've mostly just kind of identified themselves as podcast listeners. They've subscribed uh, on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever, which I think that they all should go do. And whenever it gets updated, they listen, but they haven't really forayed over to the website yet. Uh, I just I hope you'll go dig into this a little bit deeper and also know that for every podcast episode we put out, we're linking the featured resources and giving some deeper explanation a little bit at times about some of the topics covered. So I hope that they'll check that out. Read Varner's uh, article, read your article about that, and give this a look and see if it's something that might benefit their study. Todd, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Travis. Mm-hmm.